Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Curator's Choice. I'm your host, Ayla Anderson, and I'm back with 100% of my voice ready to go. A huge thank you to the wonderful and, might I say, very handsome Dakota Sparks for filling in for me and doing an amazing job. I have a few things I wanted to share with you guys before we get started today. Firstly, my Patreon is finally live! What, what? So if you are interested in giving your support to this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curatorschoice. I have a couple of different, very affordable options on there. Uh, there's two support tiers, the historian tier for $2 a month, which will come with my undying love and early episode access, and the curator tier for $5, which will also, of course, come with my undying love early episode access, and a monthly patron exclusive bonus episode. So your support will help me to continue creating what I personally think is amazing content. And if you're unable to do support through Patreon, please just continue listening. That's the best kind of support. And just share it if you can with your friends and family, and maybe they can join us all on this historic museum learning adventure. All right, so the dorky stuff is over. The next thing I want to share with you guys, I'm really, really excited about as well. So back in October, if you listen to it, um, I did publish a bonus episode with Todd at Appalachian Glass. So Todd messaged me the other day to tell me that apparently there was a couple from New York that was traveling to visit their daughter's home in North Carolina, and they listened to my podcast that morning of that episode and then decided to go check out Todd's Glass Shop. So somebody actually visited a place because of the episode. (laughs) That's so cool. I'm really excited about it. Okay, okay. I'm calming down. We're getting ready to roll. Today, we are speaking with Robert Hancock for the last of our installment of our three-part series at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia. As the senior curator and director of collections, Robert is going to tell us all about behind-the-scenes work that's done when planning an exhibit and how their presentation has kind of changed over time, uh, preserving and telling the story of new acquisitions, and highlighting one of the very first artifacts in the museum's collection, Robert E. Lee's Colt Revolver. As always, you can see pictures of this episode at curatorschoicepodcast.com, and don't forget to check it out on Facebook and Instagram. So how did you end up coming to this museum in the first place? Are Um, you from Richmond? Well, I went to school here. I went to VCU as a museum studies uh, student. So ended up doing an internship. Well, ended up doing an internship at the old Museum of the Confederacy. Actually, I did two internships. Uh, the reason I did the second one is because they were installing um, what at that time was a groundbreaking exhibit, an NEH exhibit called Before Freedom Came, oh. uh, which dealt with the antebellum South slave life uh, or African-American life in the antebellum, sli- uh, antebellum South. So I wanted to stick around while that exhibit was being done, uh, both for the experience of doing an exhibit install, but also because this was, was a really important exhibit. It sounded really special. So I uh, stuck around for that and ended up just kind of warming my way in. Started working part-time. I was still in school at the time. 
So I started working part-time at a desk and giving tours through the White House, that sort of thing. And uh, just, there just happened to be an opening come up in the uh, collections department. And they all knew me already. I'd been working there for you know, more than a year. Um, had just finished uh, getting my degree, so they, I kind of just sl slipped into the That's department working with the collection, and I've just I've been here ever since, and that was 30 years ago. So what's your job title now? Uh, senior curator and director of collections. And I'm just, just sort of my own personal curiosity, honestly, whenever you're doing, for, for like a day in the life of you working here, is it a lot of, let's be honest, every single person who works at a museum does like 5,000 different jobs. Yeah, but for the main part, for your, for your collections, are you kind of doing restoration work or are you doing um, a lot of cataloging? Do you guys create a lot of exhibits? Yes. Okay, all of that, yes. Our, our prime, obviously our primary uh, job is the care of the collection. Mm -hmm. uh, the stuff's been here starting back in the 1890s. The collection started in the 1890s. First it started exhibiting it to the public in 1896. So stuff's been around for a while mm -hmm. and my responsibility is to make sure it is in better shape than when I found it when I came here 30 years ago. And so whoever takes over from me, whenever that is, um, you know, it doesn't have quite as much work to do, hopefully. <laughs> so our, 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 our primary job is the, the care and the cataloging and the research of the collection. Now, we don't get to do that every day because, like I say, we all wear a lot of hats around here. Um, so other than that, yes, um, there are always, uh, well, because of COVID, our exhibit schedule kind of got curtailed a bit. Uh, but yes, we try to get as much stuff on display as possible. Um, the collection is not huge, but it is large. It's, it's 15,000 odd artifacts and 150,000 manuscript items. So obviously we cannot put all this on exhibit all the time for everyone to see forever. Uh, first of all, from a preservation point of view, it's just bad um, and physical impossibility. You saw the size of our storage. Mm -hmm. I mean, I couldn't it's put that huge, all on yeah. display. So what we try to do is get as much out, out on exhibit as we can that's apropos to the exhibit uh, but also, um, both the uh, library collection, or archives collection, and our object collection is available. Um, well, the object collection is available online, so you can, you can see all our records there through yeah. our website. Um, but you can also make on-site research appointments as well. So we do try to keep the collection as open to the public as we can by you know, allowing people to schedule an appointment to come in to see anything that's not currently on display. So. I'm also curious how you guys manage your displays because just from what you were saying now and from what I've seen, it seems like you guys have a pretty solid schedule of rotating exhibits and things that you do differently. So, I mean, how does that kind of work out? Does some Is there somebody who's in charge that just is like, hey, you know what, we need to switch this out every three years? Or I'm just curious, what does that process look like? It's, it's probably more complicated than most people think because I guess most people think, I have this stuff, let's figure out how to get it up on display. Mm -hmm. um, Exhibits today tend to be a little bit more sophisticated than that. Also, they're mission driven. So if we have an idea we want to present a certain topic, uh, for instance, how could we, first of all, is that topic suitable for an exhibit? Sometimes it's better for a lecture series. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's better for an on-site program, for instance. But if it's a good exhibit topic, um, first of all, do we have the artifacts, for instance, that can sustain the subject matter? And if so, how do we want to go about interpreting it? 
And that's just where it starts. <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily start with, oh, we have these really cool pieces that we want to display. It kind of starts with the idea and the mission first. It might. It, it's, it's, I guess it's a little bit like songwriting. Sometimes you come up with the lyrics first. Sometimes you get a tune in your head. Okay. Um, in this case, sometimes we have an artifact or a group of artifacts. It'd be really nice if we could get these on exhibit because they're interesting to look at, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and do we have an idea of how we can interpret these to make them interesting and educational for the public? Can we, is there anything we can say by displaying these things? On the other hand, we'll come up with a subject and say, do we have the artifacts to support this? Because if not, and we still want to do it, we may have to borrow from other institutions mm -hmm. to supplement what we have. Um, so it can go any, any, any one of a couple of different directions as far as you know, developing your ideas uh, for an exhibit. Would you say that the exhibit that you guys have downstairs from us right now, is that like your, is it a permanent exhibit or is that another exhibit that will change? All exhibits change a little bit, but yeah, that's kind of our flagship exhibit. That's going to take you through from the from the uh, from the late 1850s right through the war to the immediate post-war era, kind of an overview of the entire subject of the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. um, so that one we rotate, um, uh, especially textiles. Uh, we'll rotate the textiles in and out, like uniforms and or dresses, that sort of thing. We'll take some of them off for preservation purposes. We'll take them off exhibit and replace them with another one. Uh, so we'll rotate within the exhibit, but it doesn't substantially change. And then so we have the other two. That, well, there's three upstairs, correct? There's yes. um, the Greenback exhibit, mm -hmm. and then there's, I didn't see it, but there's one on the sidewall here that's art exhibit? Um, that one is uh, Richmond during the war. Okay. So that's a panel show, uh, oh, which, which kind of gives you, it's a, it's a mixture of, uh, of quotes and then, you know, museum speak. Uh, explanatory labels, along with quotes uh, taken from people who are in Richmond, uh, either in the Union Army or civilian or uh, an enslaved person that was living in Richmond, who commented on the on the uh, especially the, the end of the war. But this takes it from sixty one to sixty uh, sixty five as well. Um, it also has QR codes built into it. So if you're interested in any of the sites like here at Tredegar Ironworks, or if you're interested in where Libby Prison was, that sort of thing. Uh, the QR code will give you a map so you can actually see oh, that's really uh, cool. which, where the sites were or where, if it still exists, where the building is. That's, that's really cool. I'm a huge fan of QR codes. I'm glad that yeah. those came around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third exhibit is, is that the one that's kind of um, behind the Greenbacks? Yeah, there's Greenback America and then there's the Southern Ambitions, okay. uh, which talks about um, the South, so the Confederate government um, uh, trying to give themselves a world presence mm -hmm. uh, by sending diplomats, for instance, to England and France, that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, then we have our Appomattox location, which has, has its own permanent exhibit, plus a changing gallery. And then, of course, there's the White House. I mean, you guys have a ton going on here, honestly. Yeah. And I, I had no idea. Like, we, we did get the chance to go and check out the White House. Um, and it's just so interesting because it's this, this building that is almost an unassuming building in the middle of, like, a medical complex. Um, so, I mean, that's interesting. And then you come here and you have all of the old buildings from the old ironworks. So, I mean, you guys have a lot going on here. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, you know better than, uh, <laughs> better than I do, that's for sure. Um, but what I think is going to be really cool about this episode is you're going to talk about one of the items in your, your um, you know, semi-permanent exhibit and then also one that you have in storage, right. which is um, in its own way kind of fun as well. So... Um, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the one that is in the main exhibit first. Um, the one in the main exhibit is Robert E. Lee's uh, Colt revolver that he carried during the war. Now, the reason we picked that um, is because it was one of the very first, if not the first, artifact donated to the museum in, eight, in the 1890s, uh, when the museum was just starting. And it was given to us by one of Robert E. Lee's daughters. 
so we picked that because it was very, it was one of the very first, and kind of set the precedent for how the collecting was going to go. Because mm -hmm. uh, when this collection started, it was started by the Confederate Memorial Literary Society. That was the gr the governing body for the old Confederate Museum, as it was known when it opened in 1896 in the old White House. Um, so when we started, obviously, it was a museum about the Confederacy, mm -hmm. and some would say at that point, during the, the height of the Lost Cause, it was a bit of a shrine to the Confederacy. Um, and that's just the way it was. Uh, that you're dealing in the 1890s through the turn of the, into the 20th century, you're dealing with the height of the Lost Cause era. Um, the Confederate veterans movements, were, of course, were very popular, a lot of them taking place right here in Richmond. Mm -hmm. And they started collecting this and putting these pieces on display. And each one of the rooms in the White House at that time was given a different state designation. So what was the dining room, and is now interpreted as the dining room, because it's all been restored back to its wartime appearance, um, that was the Virginia room, and that's where Robert Lee's Colt pistol ended up, is in a case in the Virginia room, in the old dining room of the White House. So the years went on, in the 1970s, they decided to build a new museum right beside the White House on 12th and Clay Streets. And at that time, they decided to change the name from Confederate Museum to Museum of the Confederacy. And they did that uh, on purpose. It was, it, was a, it was a definite choice they made um, to let people know that it, it is shifting slightly mm -hmm. from a kind of a shrine to, to, a a, to a professional history museum and a museum of the Confederacy, not a museum for the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. And they made that distinction very, very clean when they said museum of the Confederacy. And those subtleties can carry a lot of weight just on the way it, that you say certain things. It can, it can. Um, and it remained that until uh, we became the American Civil War Museum. And at that point, it gave us the opportunity uh, to expand our mission. Because now it wasn't just the Confederate side we were dealing with. Um, it was the entire conflict. Um, everything from the antebellum South, especially the South, uh, through the war years, the immediate post-war years, um, when you're dealing with Reconstruction and then the Lost, lost Cause era, um, all the way up to the present day. Because you also deal with the legacies of the war, because we're still dealing with some of those mm -hmm. legacies of the war as well. Um, so I think, you know, we have this this pistol, which I have a few questions about, but everybody knows Robert E. Lee. That's not mm -hmm. an uncommon name. Um, but would you mind for for people who maybe aren't super familiar with everything about it, could you give us just like a general history of who Robert E. Lee was? Oh goodness, okay. And if not, you do not have to. No, no, no. Um, I, but... I I can. I'll let's keep this nice and short. Uh, West Point graduate. Uh, eventually, at the time of the war, he was in the United States Army. Uh, he was a colonel. And at the beginning of the war, he decided that if Virginia seceded from the Union, he would have to follow his home state. Uh, he would not stay in the U.S. Army. He resigned his commission and joined the Virginia forces. Um, and a lot, of men had to, a lot of men in the military had to make that choice. And a lot of people don't realize also the mindset was slightly different in the 1850s, early 1860s. You were a New Yorker first, or you were a Virginian first. Before you were Before you were a U.S. citizen. Your state affiliation was very, very important. Uh, when the volunteer armies were raised, both North and South, during the war, it was the, you know, the 5th Pennsylvania, it was the 33rd Virginia, it was the 15th Georgia. Um, they all had state designations attached to them because that's where they were raised. There's a certain esprit de corps with that. And so when uh, there were two votes in Virginia, the first one they voted not to secede, the second vote they decided to secede. And at that point, Robert Lee resigned his commission and join the Confederate forces. So it wasn't necessarily because he wanted to, to be a part of the Confederate movement. Yeah, if you read his resignation letter and letters he was writing to friends and family and colleagues in the army, 
he did so reluctantly. He, he resigned his commission reluctantly, but once he did, he- He fully threw, embraced. He fully embraced his mission. <laughs> Um, at the beginning of the war, he was an advisor to uh, President Jefferson Davis. He didn't have a field command. We all know him as a field commander. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the one that surrendered to the Appomattox. Yes, but unfortunately, that is like his main, that's what everybody knows him as. Exactly. I'm sure his, <laughs> he's he happy about that memory. But he didn't start that way. He started off as a military advisor to the President of the Confederacy. Um, Joseph E. Johnston uh, was, General Joseph E. Johnston was in charge of the Army here in Virginia. And he was the one who fought at Appomattox. He and Beauregard, Lee wasn't even there. But uh, once Johnston was wounded uh, at the Battle of Seven Pines, Lee had to take over. So Lee was then in charge of what we know now as the Confederate Army, even okay. though technically it's the Army of Northern Virginia. It was split between you know three different theaters of the war. So Lee was really only in charge of the Army of Northern Virginia uh, fighting in this area and then up into Pennsylvania. So uh, he was a command of the army that when they surrendered at Appomattox. And again, like you say, that's probably what he's most famous for. If anybody knows Lee, it's probably because, you know, he surrendered to U.S. Grant mm -hmm. at Appomattox. Definitely. So that's, that's Lee. Okay. Then he became a, a president of Washington College, which is now Washington and Lee University, and died in 1870. And that is Lee in a nutshell. That's Lee in a nutshell, the best I can do. Anyway, if I got anything wrong, I, I, I apologize to any of the Lee aficionados out there. <laughs> well, we're just doing the best that we can over here. And then my, my other question that I have about the pistol like this. So it was one of the first items that you got in your collection. Yes. You can be, can be fairly certain where it came from, and you know that it actually was his item. But what does the preservation of something like that look like? Because it was one of your first items. So I'm assuming when everything was being collected at first, it wasn't necessarily... Like the longevity probably wasn't at the same stage as it is now. So, what is the process of preserving something like that, or getting it ready once you once you get it? Um, bless the ladies who started this institution back in the 1890s. They did the very best they could. Yeah. Preservation efforts in the 1890s are not exactly what we'd call state of the art today. Okay. <laughs> However, that being said, um, the Lee pistol was well cared for. I can tell you that. Um, luckily, with something like a, uh, a Colt revolver, unless you do something really silly, it, it's... Is it pretty hardy? It's, it's fairly hardy, yeah. Okay. You're, you're pretty good. Um, so it's, you know, it's occasionally lightly cleaned, uh, that sort of thing. But the preservation efforts on something like a, a pistol is not, not that difficult. So it's nothing like having to like restore a, a disintegrating painting. No. It's kind of something that's already hardy, but you just mostly clean it with a regular gun kit every once in a while. Yeah, more or less. Okay. Yeah. And was that General Lee's, was that his during that four-year period of the war? Or was that his pistol that he carried his whole life until he died? What was the significance of this pistol? Um, well, the significance of anything carried during the war is because it was carried during the war. And Fair enough. That, and that, <laughs> and that, and it, it doesn't make any difference if it was, it, was, it was carried by Joe Smith from the 15th Pennsylvania or Robert E. Lee. It was carried during the war. It makes it more important than something else that wasn't carried during mm -hmm. the war. That being said, it's Robert E. Lee. So you have one of the top names in the conflict, and we have the pistol that was given to us by his daughters. Uh, his, uh, one of his sons also wrote about it uh, as well, and, and I think it was correspondence after the war. I can't remember now, but anyway, one of his sons also wrote about Lee. Lee wasn't one of, one of the ones that ran around brandishing a pistol, but most, most officers carried one anyway. They all carried a personal sidearm. So yes, it was the one he carried. Now, did he have it before the war? Probably, probably. But it is the one he carried throughout the war. Was it an army issue? Uh, no, officers were required to purchase their own kit, so he would have bought that himself. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I did want to cut in here and share with you guys something I recently learned while visiting Arlington National Cemetery. 
Okay, so a quick little background about Lee and, and the Arlington house. So at the very top of the hill in the cemetery, the Arlington Cemetery, sits the Arlington House. It was constructed between 1808 and 1818, and technically it's like the nation's first memorial to George Washington, and was also the home of Lee right before Virginia's secession. So after Virginia seceded, Lee and his wife left the house. And if you go there, you can go inside the house and they have a ton of paintings and different exhibits. And it was there that I read about Lee losing his United States citizenship, right? Which kind of makes sense, but I had never really thought about it before. So after everything ended, the war was over, there was still a lot of leftover feelings of this separation of a nation. Lee was very clear with his intentions, though, of trying to reunite the North and the South. He even stated in, in one famous quote, It is the duty of every citizen in the present condition of the country to do all in his power to aid in the restoration of peace and harmony. So here's what I was surprised to learn. Lee, because of his allegiance to seceded Virginia... And pulling away from the nation, he was stripped of his U.S. citizenship. He was by no means the only person to be stripped of that. But after the war was over and everyone was trying to repair this broken sense of patriotism, Lee encouraged repairing that. And in 1865, he signed an amnesty oath asking to become a citizen of the United States. He kind of did so as like this active encouragement for Confederate soldiers to rejoin the United States. So unfortunately, his alliance was misplaced and not because of the misplacement, but he was never given his full citizenship request upon his death. Um, he died in 1870 of heart failure. So he had tried multiple times to become a citizen and never worked out. And then his, his oath was lost. But then it was actually found about 100 years later in the National Archives. It was rediscovered. And if you would like to read more about Lee and his quest for citizenship, it's quite a story. I have also included a link to a great article from the National Archives in the show notes. So check that out. And I also have a picture of Lee's signed amnesty oath from 1865 on the website. But anyway, so though Lee died without his citizenship, on August 5th, 1975, at a ceremony at the Arlington House, General President General Ford called Lee an example to seceding generations and had his citizenship fully restored. So though he died not being a U.S. citizen, he is now a U.S. citizen. Okay, let's get back to Robert. Uh, and another question I have. So you were talking about uh, when, when it was the museum was back at the, the Confederate White House. And they had like the Virginia room. So I'm assuming that was just every item that they had that was technically to do with Virginia. It went into that room. Right. And that, that's just a, I think that that shows kind of an evolution of uh, the way that, that things have moved is now instead of having something like everything is from this area, you have to completely create an entire story throughout your exhibit of all the different artifacts, artifacts and items. Yeah, the, the, the um, exhibits tend to be more thematic and let's say geographical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it made sense at the time when they were uh, forming the museum, they had a regent system. So you have a lady in Richmond, for instance, you lived here, who was responsible for taking care of everything in the Virginia room. And you had a lady who was responsible for taking care of everything in the Georgia room. You also had somebody in Georgia who was affiliated with the museum collecting pieces from Georgia and shipping them to the oh, museum in yeah. Richmond. So that's why they kind of broke it up. They had every state in the South 
uh, including the border states, were represented in the House. They also had a room called the Solid South Room, which is basically the, the beginnings of our archive collection. So we have an item that everyone can come and see, yep. and then you have an item that has, there's a lot more interesting things around the item that are happening, and right. you will eventually have it out, possibly. Right. What is that? Then that was my super smooth lead-in to the second item. You guys like that? Nice, nice segue. <laughs> sometimes I'm a little bit better, sometimes <laughs> I'm not. Now we'll spend five minutes talking about the segue, I don't forget what the question was. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so what we have, we've just got, uh, of course, the, the lease pistol came to us in the 1890s. This one came to us a couple of months ago, and it's now October. Um, it is a uh, Jeffs Davis Highway Road sign uh, from off the old Route 1. Um, and again, as a museum, we're responsible for following not just the war period from 61 to 65, uh, but the legacies of these wars, of the war, and how this continues on still affects, especially socially politically as well, and it's still happening, because right now, of course, uh, there's there's much debate, especially, for instance, in schools, changing school names that are named after Confederate figures, uh, especially Confederate military figures. Um, Jeff Davis Highway has been renamed, that sort of thing. So we got one of the old signs um, that was taken down by the highway department for the old Route 1 Jeff Davis Highway, uh, because that's all part of the legacy of the of the the Civil War. I mean, it's continued on uh, through our, our, our social and, and literally geographic landscape. Mm -hmm. uh, roads named after Confederate leaders, uh, schools, any number, of, any number of other buildings, for instance, named after Confederate leaders. And all this is coming back in now. It's, it's all becoming a debate. Um, so the museum needs to be involved in this evolving social changes i don't yeah. i don't even know what to call it. i mean everything yeah it's everything's moving so fast too mm -hmm. you know we're not just the old, the old ye old stuffy civil war museum we're you know we're right in there with the times that's right so yes th this is the sort of thing we actively collect as well i mean we're still collecting everything from the antebellum south all the way through um but this is one of the newer pieces we just got in it's you know fairly topical at least when we're talking about it now mm -hmm. um so that's we have a few other pieces uh, that have come to us uh, in the same vein uh, that whole landscape changes. So for people who may not be familiar with Richmond, was this a particularly important roadway or was it one that was really historic or what? What's why was it named that and what's that kind of its history? I, I, I don't know why it was named Jeff Davis Highway specifically, but Route 1 before Interstate 95 was the north-south route through uh, Virginia. Okay, so, it so was if, you were come, if you were coming to Richmond, the fast way to get here is on Route 1, again, before 95 was built. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was an important road in its time, very important. Mm -hmm. um, today you pop on Route 1 either because something's there that you need to see or there's a backup on 95. Okay. <laughs> so you, pop on, <laughs> you pop on Route 1 that runs parallel to it. And when was the decision made to change the name? That was relatively recent, I think. And it changed from Jefferson Davis Highway to, oh, we're not sure the name? No, I don't know. I didn't know they had changed the name until the sign showed up. Yeah, the sign was offered to us. I was like, sure, we'll take it. What? Oh, they've changed it. Oh, okay. And then it was kind of like this process of, okay, so now what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> what are your future plans for this sign? Um, well, it'll it'll remain in the, in the permanent collection. Uh, again, cataloged and explained why we have it in the collection. Uh, the fact that the name was changed. So future generations, generations from now, will kind of give an idea of what was going, what was going on in the 2020s. Way back <laughs> in the day, you know, great-grandpa. Yeah. Um, 
Now, if we developed either, could go on online, well, it'll end up on the online catalog regardless. It'll eventually end up there. But uh, if we do an online exhibit, for instance, talking about this whole subject, or if we do an exhibit about it, then it'll probably end up coming back out again uh, for general view. But. And it's really interesting to think of something that was just taken down a few months ago that all of a sudden, like, it's in a museum. Yeah. And, you know, museums are not static, old or boring. They are up with the times. <laughs> it's one of the, one of the things I've been fighting against and fighting for. That's uh, our mantra. Yeah, that's right. So you're mentioning when we were walking through the storage area that you had an online exhibit that was of the different, was it the statue locations? It, it's, if you type into Google or your preferred uh, search engine on Monument Avenue. Um, so if you type in on Monument Avenue, you'll get to the online exhibit, which, which traces the history of Monument Avenue in Richmond. And for those who aren't familiar with Monument, Monument Avenue in Richmond, it was basically the Confederate way. Uh, there were statues of Jeb Stewart, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, um, Jefferson Davis, all lined down this beautiful, beautiful street. Uh, which at the time when the first monument went up uh, was basically the, uh, the boondocks of Richmond. It was not even suburbs at that point. But a huge neighborhood and wealthy neighborhood sprang up around these monuments all the way down. These monuments have been around since the 1880, I mean, late 19th century. So the exhibit um, goes through and tells you the history of Monument Avenue, why these monuments were developed, why they were put up, who put them up, who paid for them, uh, why they went up, um, and the whole history, of course, now they've all been taken down. Mm -hmm. Lee, Lee statue was the last one to come down. That was just relatively recently. Uh, so it takes you right up to the point where they were um, uh, first unveiled all the way to the time when they were taken down. Uh, so if you're interested in learning more about um, the history of Monument Avenue and what's been going on most recently, then just go on monumentavenue.com, I think. Uh, but if you type that in your search engine, you'll find it. Oh, that's you'll find really, the exhibit. That's really interesting. And I mean, it also, I mean, it's just similar with the changing of the highway signs as yeah. these taking down these statues. And so, and this might be too personal of a question, so if it is, you please, you do not have to answer. But I'm curious, like, what is your view? What is the museum's view when you have people who come in and they say, this, this, this is an argument, a discussion that I've had with my grandmother before, where she's like, well, they're part of history. You should not be taking them down because that's erasing part of history. And then you have the other side of the argument where it's like, well, it's more of putting them up on a pedestal rather than putting them in a history museum where you can talk about the history of them and not raise up their values. So what would you say is like your opinion or the museum's opinion on people who come in with those kinds of rhetorics? The museum as an institution doesn't have an opinion. Uh, the museum as an institution is here to present facts as best we can. And as um, unbiased as you can. Yeah, and try to let people make their own decisions. Now, um, that's difficult to do sometimes. Now, if you're asking me my personal opinion, what I'll tell you is uh, the reasons that the monuments went up and the reason those monuments came down are two different things. You're talking about two completely different times in history. Should they have stayed up? Are they just a part of history that we just have to live with? I don't know about that. It's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to me. I, I grew up, I'm a Virginian. I'm a Virginian first. I grew up in Virginia. Okay, I, grew, <laughs> I, I, grew, I grew up looking at these monuments come to school. I mean, it, to me, you know, it, honestly, I ne back in the 1980s, I never gave it a thought. Never, ever gave it a thought. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll look at any monument, I don't care who it is, but especially 
uh, a Confederate monument, I will look at it differently now than I did 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Because I've changed. Uh, society has changed. Our outlook on these things is, is all evolved. This is the way society works anyway. I mean, you look at the turmoil in the 1960s. Um, you have periods like this where you're, you're, at least in the United States, you got to shake yourself up a little bit every now and again. And it's going to happen, whether you like it or not. You know, I can sit here and say, well, no, you should just left them up there. You know, being an historian, being a curator, I could look at as an object and say, look, this, this thing was put up in the 1880s or 1890s or whenever it was put up. And, and, and it's, it's, a, it's an historical monument. It's a piece of history. It needs to be protected. But it has a social value as well. Yeah. You can't put up something called a monument and not expect it to have some social ramifications for those who are looking at it. People have monumental feelings about it. They do. They can. So it's not just an object anymore. It, it, is, it is a result of... It was put up for a reason. It's not just a, a pretty painting that someone did of a landscape with some hairy cows standing in water. Okay? This was... If you looked at the Robert E. Lee statue, it was truly monumental. It was huge. Why is the question? What... Go to the website and look. Why was the Robert E. Lee statue put up in the first place? Mm -hmm. And now that it's coming down, ask yourself, is there a good rational reason for it to take it down? And I think most people, if they think about it hard enough, will say, yeah, there is a rational reason for taking it down. I might not like to see it come down. I might enjoy looking at it. I might... I might uh, have a, a certain veneration for the man in history, whatever your opinion might be. But I think most people, if they think hard enough about it, will see there is a rationale for it to come down. I mean, time won't tell us whether we're right or wrong, because it's already happened at this point. That's true. It's happened. Do you, so, do you by chance know what happens to those when, when they are torn down? Torn down when they are torn down? When they're taken down, thank you. When they are taken down? <laughs> as far as I know, they're stored someplace on, I don't know, I honestly don't know where they are. Mm -hmm. We had a lot, when this, when a lot of the monuments first started coming down, there was talk about taking down a lot. We got a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, a lot of letters to the museum, can you take them? Can you take them? The problem is, like with Robert E. Lee, you're talking about, you know, it wouldn't fit even there in our lobby if we wanted to. These statues, again, are monumental in size, and we would not, we cannot t care for them properly. We just don't have the facilities to do it. We don't have the space for them no, either. No, I mean, I already saw your storage, and it's, it's packed it's full in there. And you couldn't get even, you know, barely one of the monument's heads in, in storage space. So, um, you know, aside from any other reasons, we, we physically could not, in good conscience, take them in because we can't store them. There's mm -hmm. nowhere for us to put them. We can't care for them. Uh, so right now they're being stored someplace near the uh, water treatment plant, I think, mm -hmm. somewhere out there. I don't know. I don't know exactly where they are. And it seems to be the case in a lot of situations where people, um, if you if you have an artifact that you would love to take in or that that is in any way important, but you, you just can't because it's so expensive, you don't have the space. I mean, there's so much more that goes into a museum getting items rather than just just having it given to you. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole back piece that a lot of people don't get to see about those kind of Yeah, situations. I mean, you know, since we started in the 1890s, we've been collecting a long time. We're still collecting. We've got I've got four or five new donations in storage I am pro I'm in, in the process of processing. 
uh, cataloging and that sort of thing. So we're still actively collecting, but we do have to be pretty choosy about what we take in. Now, if it has anything to do with the subject that we deal with, our mission, um, and our collecting policy, we will take it if we, if we all possibly can, we will take it in. Mm -hmm. uh, simply because that, again, that's our, our mission is to preserve these pieces for future generations. So we take as much as we can. Now, so yeah, with the, with the monuments, it's just physically we can't, we just mm -hmm. couldn't do it. Yeah, definitely. So. Well, and it's also really, really cool that you guys take the enormous amount of extra effort and you have so many of your things available online as well. Right. So anyone who may not be able to actually come to Richmond in the, in the, in the near future, uh, you can see a lot of things on your online exhibit. Yeah, if you go th either through our online exhibits or if you go through our website, you can actually search the collection. Perfect. Uh, so in the object collection, now granted it's, it's, it's run by the database we use, so it's not terribly user-friendly sometimes. You have to be careful what you type in, you'll get like a five billion hits and you'll never find <laughs> the one you're looking for. So if anybody out there has any problems with our database online, just give me an email and I'll walk you through it. Um, but you can do a search by uh, object type, for instance, if you're looking, you know, how many pair of gloves do we have or bonnets or pistols. Uh, you can type that into the search engine and, and see what we have, and it'll pull up all of our database records. Uh, so where possible, there's a photograph, there's a description of the piece, who owned it, you know, any provenance of the piece that we know, anecdotal histories that came with it, that sort of thing. Uh, so you can search our object collection. Uh, right now, uh, under a licensing agreement with the uh, Virginia Museum of History and Culture, our archives, uh, rare book and map collection are currently uh, located at the VMHC up on the Bull uh, Arthur Ashe Boulevard. Um, they are recataloging and digitizing our collection uh, basically for us. So if you're doing research, for instance, uh, in Richmond on this period, it's kind of one-stop shopping because uh, yeah. the VMHC has a phenomenal library collection. Um, and we have a very, very good, especially uh, Confederate manuscript collection. Um, so they're all housed in the same building now. Uh, so if you're interested in, in re doing any research with our manuscript uh, collection, you can contact the VMHC directly and, and do it there. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on my podcast and sharing with us some of your items and some of your knowledge, especially behind the, behind the doors knowledge. <laughs> so that was really, really fun. Thank you. That was my pleasure.